This is episode three of season one. Welcome to Tales from Greatshell, a podcast featuring one-of-a-kind stories from the universe of the upcoming Greatshell Chronicles series of novels. I am your host, Simon Woodington. Today we will be spending some time with a wanderer who encounters important things missing that really ought not to be, in a tale I like to call Wakened After. Let us begin. They probably had no idea what was happening until it was over. The room I stood in showed signs of activity. Light poured onto a table upon which there were two large clayware bowls, and I'd have to guess three or four plates by the fragments of bisque. One was intact, but I had no use for it. There were crumbs in one of the bowls, and I chanced to taste. Some kind of protein, I think, and a coating of gluten that had been dipped in... Is that fruit sauce? Inconclusive, but it was tasty compound flour matter. Inventive and skilled, but typical for the local cuisine. Each family had a different approach to this culturally commonplace dish. What was it called? Hedgy. Ah, yes, of course. Thank you. You're welcome. I searched the rest of the one-room living space. There was one bed and many blankets covered in a light coating of pale sand. Also a small table, fireplace, and large chest. Nothing inside but toys for children. Everything I saw told me that they left everything and took nothing. Certainly nothing of interest to me. I wandered outside and listened carefully. Nature in its abundance, the lazy brush of wind dusting gold across the landscape that was once a forested plain. With no thanks to the fool whose hubris had sent a mile-high plume of ash over all of this, I moved on to the end of the village closer to the puddle that had once been a vast body of water. Looking over the basin, I saw just enough for my thirsty canteen, and maybe someone else. So I began to make my way down. Naturally, it was then I heard feet dragging in the sand behind me. I didn't stop. Hey now. Rough sounding, but young. Not the local accent, either. Hey now, let's not hold you out one. Now that was a threat. I let myself come to a halt and raised my empty hands. Yeah, turn right and give me a look at you. I obliged, but I had a habit of not giving observers much to see other than a tall, probably muscular, Fella wrapped head to toe in leather and cloth. I carried several pouches on a belt and a backpack that was more stitches than cloth. The glare of the sun turned my new friend into a narrow silhouette. I did get sight of the weapon in his hand. Nothing more than a strung hand bow. You have anything to eat lately? I asked. My voice sounded a little off, probably dry and muffled. Lately? He said. Nothing to eat round here except what they brung with you. You brung with you? No. He's going to shoot you. I can't stop him from here. Yes, you can. You just don't want to hurt him. That's true. 
You're lying. No one's built like you got so far from the coast. Now that wasn't a nice accusation. I said so, and he let a bolt loose from his little weapon. It sailed near my cheek. He didn't reload, and I wondered why. The force of that was, I know. How many bolts does it have? Two? Three? I asked, rather politely. Tell me where you come from, the feller insisted. Now, these weren't very high stakes, not for me, anyway. But the way he staggered, I guessed his health was pretty bad. Either you're a bad shot, or you're faint. He made an angry noise, and I figured his weapon had only two bolts in it. I could probably close the distance between us during a reload, and I had the physical advantage. Putting him down would be easy. I hadn't lowered my hands, but I started to, because I needed to show him something. Stay still, you shardin' stranger! I know fairness is a concept that has withstood the ravages of history. The idea of unfairness, over-fairness, an abundance of fairness? We don't have a phrase for that. Not in the common tongue, anyway. The Starwise call it Edenheld, or divine favor. See, they couldn't quite get it. Divinity to them is love, and that's all they think they need to know. They're wrong, naturally, but who could tell them that? In one of my pouches, I located the ration I was searching for, rich with protein, vitamins, and more. Enough to last an adult a clear month. His skinny silhouette had become a figure of less contrast, and I could see that he was dangerously thin under the tattered rags of leather he wore. A calorie-rich meal like this would probably kill him. I don't need to eat. Ease up and this is yours, I said, and reached forward with the ration. He wiped drool from his mouth with his empty hand and promptly fell forward. I guess that would do for an answer. I made a broth from some slivers of the ration bar and helped get some of it into his system. He opened up like a rusty engine cover and exploded with personal exposition. The important part was that he was a survivor from the neighboring village, Astalga Riverlock. His name was Hefro. It's like this, you see, he said between slurps. All round about. Most fellers are gone like they've been wiped away like a bad stain. When I looked on the landscape, I could clearly recall the living and the life that once resided, worked, and played here. Objectively, there had been little change. Gurdian Village was empty, but it had been empty for more seasons than most cared to remember. The land never recovered. Well, it hadn't yet, but it had a chance without any interference. What's your name, feller? Ephraim asked. Oh, that was easy. Which one? Come on, I'm not doing that now. I've already decided. I think it's silly. He's going to love it. Trust me. Good. For a moment, it looked like she might be right. But gradually, his stupor became a spindly but friendly smile that struck me as kind. See? Hmm. You can't tell if it's sincere. No, but I don't have to. 
Fellers near death don't usually waste energy smiling. Yes, you saved his life. He'll love everything you say. Perhaps. But now I need to ask him what he's about. It turned out he didn't like that question very much, unfortunately. But as uncomfortable as it made him, he worked up his courage to try and give me an answer. He continued to exposit while I set up some tinder from a collapsing home nearby and started a little fire. Around the time he was running out of ways to say that he didn't really understand things, he passed out and was soon snoring quite loudly. That was a waste of time. You sound prophetic. That does not mean what you think it means. You don't think that the barrier was at all interesting? That was the only thing he said that made any sense. Then tomorrow he can show us. Nowhere was good to go. But company was better than nowhere, Hefro had said to me, or something like that. It would be a few days to make the journey on foot, and so I took a little time to patch up his clothing before it fell apart. I even rustled up some material for new footwear. They were simple, nothing more than straps and foot padding, but he was mightily impressed. He went on about how much he owed me and didn't brook any protesting. So I asked him to tell me more about the barrier. Sure. Gleeman sure. Yeah, it's like... He started and interrupted himself, staring up at the movement of broad leaves overhead. Eventually, he carried on. Uh, stars on your doorstep. What a curious description. I was about to ask him about it. Then cease wasting time. As you will, so it shall be. When I did, he thought some more, about long enough for us to sit for another meal. His recovery was slow but steady. He explained, roughly, that it was like the full moons when you've stepped out of your house before the sun was on the horizon. Blue light everywhere, but you can't touch it or get close to it. I let that sit for a while, and the next day I asked him why he came to Gridian. For some hope, he said, but not why. That rusty engine cover wouldn't budge, no matter how subtly I pried. We didn't say anything else until we were crossed over the hill that gave us a view of Astalga. True to its name, it was surrounded on all sides by water, except for a narrow bridge that looked unscathed. You see? Moonlight, Hefro said, gesturing toward... At first I wasn't sure what it was, what I was seeing. Half the town, no, half the world was divided by a wall of sapphire light, the top of which I could not see. A gigantic mirror reflecting light from water, but not so as to overwhelm the senses. I had to get closer. As we did, I observed that the emittance was constant, or rather the perception was always the same. It did not obscure the buildings that stood on the small island, or its lack of citizens. When asked, Avril told me that there had been 500 souls living here. And now? I haven't counted them, but about a dozen, if you count me. Was this what happened when everybody let go? 
This event does not support that logic. And what does, Sonata? I don't know. She did not say anything else for a while, and I did not fault her for that. We stood before an impossible event, except that I knew nothing was. So what was it? Just within reach, the light was no less bright, and its proximity no greater than when I had stood on a hill a league away. I reached out. Who was responsible for this? Hey now, good, don't touch that. But I had. Everything was wrong. Or everything looked wrong. The air. There was no air. But no side effect either. But that wasn't the most... The light. Everything was dark, inverted somehow. Like a negative image. The edges of things, like my hands, were light where they should have been. And... You understand? Not black. The shadows were dull, more purple and gray. I turned. Heffrel wasn't moving on the other side. I mean, I could see him, but he wasn't solid. Like I was seeing the world, I was just in as a reflection on glass. His arms were raised, stuck in the air, and his mouth open, yelling after me. I was tempted to try and step back through, as if I was sure doing that would bring me back to that reality. But I was curious. Wouldn't you be? I was in the same place, but inverted, like I said. It was a stalga, but nothing was moving, not even the grass. I began to see that there were people on this side that I hadn't seen in normal reality. They weren't moving, either, and I wondered why I could. I walked up to a gentleman of generous proportions and waved my hand in front of his face. He was staring off at something else, only not staring, if that makes sense. I tried to see what he was looking at, but could only see another building. Was there someone or something inside of it that he was concerned about? Then I heard, Stop. One more step, and I will slice you. Well, I don't know about you, but... I only have more questions than when we started. Honestly, that's the point. It's important to understand that none of these tales are dead ends. We can return to them and continue to spend time with them whenever we choose. On that note, I heartily invite you to let me know which stories and characters you would like to be continued. Email us with your vote and other feedback at comments at talesofgreatchill.com. This podcast is formally available on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about this podcast, The World of Great Shell Chronicles, please visit www.talesofgreatchill.com. Well, friends and fans, our time together has been brief, but I hope it has been enjoyable. There are many more tales to come, so I hope you will join us next time to hear more from the inhabitants of Great Channel. Until the next time, all content for this episode was provided by Simon Woodington.